Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number five, the book of Jonah, chapter two. Before we continue in Jonah chapter two, when we examine uh, Jonah's psalm or prayer of thanksgiving that consumes the bulk of the chapter, I want to speak to you about a principle that is embedded in what we've studied so far in order for us to notice something that's not only interesting, but it's vitally important to our understanding of Jehovah God of Israel. As I've mentioned, the book of Jonah is far more about what God is really like than what Jonah is really like. What I want to highlight then is the notion of the power of sincere repentance to God when we violate His moral code, thus offending Him. And then I want you to notice how He responds to this. One of the elements of Jonah that makes this little book so perplexing to many Bible scholars is this strange mix of how God deals with Jonah versus how God deals with Nineveh, and then Jonah's reaction to it all. Now, what I think contributes, contributes mightily to this muddle has to do with God's decision to send Jonah to Nineveh in order to give them the opportunity to repent, so that God might show these Gentiles compassion and mercy, something that Jonah thought was reserved only for Israel, God's chosen set-apart people. But beyond that, it seems to me that despite five centuries, five centuries of their growing familiarity with their God, Jonah and Israel had an incomplete understanding of just how the quality of repentance actually worked. And it is reflected in their doctrines and their teachings prior to uh, about the 8th century BC before a better understanding seemed to be emerging. Now, I want to explain that. Jonah was wrestling with a fairly new doctrine in Israel that seems to have come about very late in the 9th and probably more very early in the 8th century BC. Now, before I go further with the discussion, I want to give much credit to the renowned Bible scholar David Noel Friedman for his outstanding research on the subject of Jonah and repentance. The new doctrine I speak of could be named in English, the God who repents about the evil. The God who repents about the evil. In the biblical Hebrew, it was uh, Nehamal Ha'ara. So how did this new theological understanding about repentance come to light? Well, clearly, humanity does not have the capacity to understand very much about the mind of God, even though so much about His mind and perspective is written down for us in the Holy Scriptures. But without much passing of the time, uh, without much passing of time, in between new revelations of understanding that seem to service at regular intervals, we just don't have that capacity to drink it all in. Unlike the largely discredited theological notion of dispensationalism that Darby introduced in the mid-1800s, uh, which much of the church today amazingly still hangs on to, whereby it is God who progresses by changing the way he administers justice, even changing the rules of the games 
of the game in different eras. In fact, the reality is that the Bible shows us that it is humans who seem to progress from era to era in our understanding of God's never-changing mindset. These profound revelations that seem to come to us suddenly, unexpectedly, are probably a direct result of a perfect timing that God wills according to stages of redemption history, a schedule that only He knows, only He controls, or perhaps it happens when He determines that His worshipers have had sufficient time, and usually we're talking centuries, to really ponder God and what we know about Him so far. So in the 8th century BC, an additional understanding of God seemed to emerge as it concerns the idea of repentance and of divine justice. Now prior to that time, Israel's sages and prophets saw the emphasis of justice in God's mind as punishment or retribution for each of humanity's wrongdoings. You know, and especially since Mount Sinai has such wrongdoings concerned God's chosen people, Israel. The new understanding was that repentance can be equivalent to or has equal value with punishment or retribution. That is, it may be possible for a sinner to escape divine retribution or the requirement to pay a penalty for the trespass with a sufficient level of repentance, sincere repentance. Now, let, let's take a moment to clear up any misconception on the biblical principle of repentance. So just put aside what you may have learned from years past about repentance. This is what the Bible has to say about it. Okay. The bulk of Roman uh, Western Christianity, which is referring to virtually all the denominations of Christianity that Gentiles of the Western world are familiar with and subscribe to, goes by a doctrine that explains repentance as primarily, if not purely, a change of mind or heart. And this is in order to receive God's forgiveness. No changer changing of our behavior is required for forgiveness. And while not recommended, we can legitimately go right on living as before we knew God and His Son Yeshua as Savior and remain united with Him in good stead and expect no reaction from God for continuing in our sinning, because all is forgiven. However, up until Gentile Christianity invented this erroneous, self-serving spin on the notion of repentance, it was fully understood that, biblically speaking, to God, the only way repentance was considered as sincere and acceptable was with a real, tangible change in our lives, in our behavior, from bad to good. So this means that to the Israelites of the 8th century, that if one determined to change their behavior to be in tune with God's will, then this represented their repentance. And this new behavior could, but did not necessarily guarantee, that God would pardon an offender without divine punishment involved of some sort. Now in the older Hebrew traditions and doctrines, prior to the very late 9th century BC, we find a different view among the Hebrews about who gets punished because we find different thinking, a, a, a different understanding about what it is that propels God to act in response to those who sin against Him. But what is common 
throughout all those years, that is, it is an understanding that had become virtually embedded and basic and the foundation upon which all later understanding would come is that each person, even each nation, gets what they deserve. And God had previously set down an offense versus punishment guideline in the Torah based on the foundational principle of proportionate justice. That is, the level of punishment reflects the severity of the crime. That's true, not only in the oldest of the Holy Scripture, but it's also an underlying dynamic of the New Testament. And as we learn, everyone must stand before the great judge to account for our actions during our lifetimes. That day is coming for us all. Now let's consider an example with the case of Sodom and Gomorrah. The people are thoroughly evil in God's eyes, with sexual immorality is clearly the primary display of their wickedness. God debates with Abraham about those who must be punished, some or all of the residents of those ancient cities. No part of their bargaining session deals with repentance. That is an opportunity for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah to repent, to stop being wicked. That's not offered. The only question ends then in between Abraham and God was, how many righteous people must be in the city in order for the city to be spared? That was the question. Can the righteousness of the very few righteous people there perhaps override the evil of the bulk of the population? To some extent, God goes along with Abraham's proposal, yet nothing is mentioned about the possibility of repentance so that those cities might survive. Interesting. In another case example that came several centuries later, after Sodom and Gomorrah, Moses pleads with God when the people of recently redeemed Israel worshipped a golden calf that they had built. What process occurred to arrive at the directive God issued to Moses to have many of those cash worshipers killed for this grave offense is very interesting. Moses intercedes, and he actually asks God to repent from what he planned on doing to Israel for their horrible evil. Exodus 32, 12. Why let the Egyptians say it was with evil intentions that he led them out to slaughter them in the hills and wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn your face, turn from your fierce anger. Relent. Don't bring such disaster on your people. Moses continues by asking God, if you are agreeable, forgive them. But if not, then wipe me out of your book. So Moses, although innocent, expressed his willingness to bear the sin of the calf, of the calf worshippers on his shoulders as a substitute. God and Moses continue to discuss what to do. God's response is, the commandments he just recently gave them will not be broken without punishment. And the that determination is his alone to make. Moses gets no sale in this deal. Your job, Moses, is not to bear their punishment. It is only to point out which persons led and participated in this unforgivable, unforgivable sin of building and worshiping that calf, so that God inflicts their just due, death, upon them, but the innocent won't be affected along with the guilty. Now, the concept that repentance of the sinner just might produce a corresponding divine 
repentance, that is, a change of God's response to a trespass against him, is really not something that Moses or the people of his era yet understood. They didn't get it that that was actually very much a part of God's eternal substance, character, and mindset. Now, the book of Jonah, which explains a newer, progressively understood truth about God and His nature, actually supports this newer doctrine in Israel of reciprocal repentance. That is, if you sincerely repent by changing your behavior, God will repent in the sense of relenting from what He had planned to do to you. But, and this is where Jonah gets it so wrong, repentance is open to everyone, not just to the people of Israel. And this includes those hated Ninevites. If even they will hear God's warning and act, they will repent, then they have as much right to the possibility of God's repentance, of His, intent, of His in, uh, intentions to punish their sins harshly, as does Israel. Jonah simply cannot accept this. He is opposed to this concept at every level of his being. See, here's the thing. God's true worshipers know more, or can know more, if we care to inquire about His mind today than did Moses or Jonah or Paul. See, a lot of history's past that's allowed us to ponder what we know about God mostly thanks to those same people I just mentioned. And to add to that understanding, as we ever so slowly become humanly capable of absorbing it. The advent of Christ was really where this notion of repentance by us can bring on God relenting of our just dues, and it was fleshed out to a whole other degree what that meant, if not to its ultimate reality, and that ultimate reality is salvation in Yeshua. At the bottom of this truth was that despite our sincere repentance, a price, a debt, that was still owed to God. The good news was that with true and lasting repentance, proven only by a permanent change in our behavior, God would kick the can of retribution down the road so that all of His stored up retribution would be placed on one person's shoulders to bear. And hallelujah wouldn't be ours. Those shoulders belong to no less than God's only begotten Son. Yeshua of Nazareth. Prior to that, it was known that a price had to be paid for forgiveness of sins. Had to be. And that price was paid in the form of the sacrificial system laid down in the Torah in the Law of Moses. But the ancient Israelites' understanding of that system was incomplete, it was too narrow. They viewed the sacrificial system a lot like we view fines for traffic violations. That is, we certainly, at least I don't, view paying a $300 fine for speeding as being forgiven. Rather, we view it as the penalty we pay to our local government for our offense. It's a cost that we each must bear for our lawless behavior. So, for the Israelites, sacrificing those countless innocent animals 
on the temple altar was the fine. To them it was the penalty they paid. They didn't quite get it, that it was really that poor innocent animal that gave its life. That was the payment for what the guilty Israelite rightly owed to God as a punishment for their offense. Yet the Holy Scriptures, especially prophets like Isaiah, explain the idea of an innocent sacrifice of a living creature as a substitute for the punishment we each owe to God for our sins, as opposed to it being like a fine. Jesus Christ is that universal substitute, but it's only for those who trust in it. Now in our era, yet another new understanding about God's mind has come about. It is that while someone else, Yeshua, did pay the price for our offenses against the Father, that does not mean that we now have a get-out-of-jail-free card. We have obligations. If we hope to maintain that pardon we received through the punishment of Yeshua on our behalf. The performing of our obligations to the Father is the evidence to Him of the sincerity of our repentance. And though these obligations are based on our actions and behavior according to the rules and law set down in God's moral code, the Law of Moses. Any new understanding of almost any kind takes time to proliferate among populations of people. Here's a modern times example. Only in the last decade or so has the field of quantum physics finally become accepted as real and not some kind of voodoo pseudoscience. The way that subatomic particles of the universe operate, as explained by quantum physics, and as opposed to the way that classic physics says they ought to, has actually always been so. Nothing about the actual operation of the universe has changed, but this new understanding of it is only fairly, fairly recently discovered, and it disputes what had been taken as immutable fact. Now, naturally, as humans are wont to do, only a handful of brave physicists believed what they were seeing enough to want to act upon it. The bulk of physicists denied it. They denied it all because it was counter to their established scientific doctrines. For them, it was heresy. Over time, the truth of what quantum physics revealed became undeniable, and so it has progressed from outlier, virtual, again, virtual heresy in the world of science to mainstream acceptance as a fact in the world of physics. So we can today use quantum physics as a good analogy to the rise of what is typically called Hebrew roots, a movement of God worshipers, of Jesus believers, who have a new understanding of something that's actually always been. Those of us who have discovered these ancient truths about God have not found something that's new and progressive that's never been, never before existed, but rather we've rediscovered something that is old and it's always been so. Yet the bulk of our brethren, followers of Jesus, still refuses to acknowledge the reality of it because it flies in the face of centuries of doctrine. So to them, it's heresy and we're heretics. See, we have to be patient as more each day open their minds to this next step of understanding that I think is happening because we have entered the final phase of human existence as we know it. This is not something to get frustrated about. You shouldn't hyperventilate over it. It is simply the way humans are wired. 
way we've always been wired, as we find some new things about how God is wired and has always been wired. And as much as this new understanding is entirely to our benefit, don't ever think that our knowledge as adherence to this new understanding is now complete. There's so much more understanding to come, and we need to ready ourselves to be open to it. All right, let's continue with our study of Jonah chapter 2. We're going to reread Jonah chapter 2, all of it. Jonah chapter 2. Adonai prepared a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. From the belly of the fish, Jonah prayed to Adonai, his God, and he said, Out of my distress I called to Adonai, and he answered me. And from the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you threw me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood enveloped me. All your surging waves passed over me. And I thought, I've been banished from your sight, but I will again look at your holy temple. The water surrounded me, threatened my life. The deep closed over me, seaweed twined around my head. I was going down to the bottom of the mountains, to a land whose bars would close me in forever. But you, you brought me up alive from the pit. Adonai, my God, as my life was ebbing away, I remembered Adonai. And my prayer came into you, into your holy temple. Those who worship vain idols give up their source of mercy. But I, speaking my thanks aloud, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation comes from Adonai. Then Adonai spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out onto dry land. You know, God uses animals from time to time to bring about miracles or to help advance a narrative or to help explain a purpose. Here in chapter 2, God directs a whale or some kind of an enormous fish to intervene into the affairs of humans. Now, in a later chapter, Yehovah will even use a simple plant. Jonah now rests in the belly of a giant sea creature, swallowed alive. Rather than as a punishment, it's actually a means of rescue. Now, in fact, I would argue that the relationship between Jonah being entombed in the whale for three days and nights and Yeshua being entombed in the ground is more than the same amount of time they shared. Both have to do with acts of resurrection but in very different ways. Verse 3, the opening words of Jonah's psalm, which is a prayer of thanksgiving, are, Out of my distress I called to the Lord, and He answered me. Now, by no coincidence, this is also the word-for-word -word opening of Psalm 120. Now, I don't want to be remiss in pointing out that in the original Hebrew, the word Lord, Adonai, is not there. The word that is there is Yehovah, God's formal name. Now, especially considering the era and how the pagan sailors on board the ship that Jonah had been on also called out to their gods, it's important to the ancient Israelite hearer or reader of the Jonah saga to be clearly informed that it was the god Yehovah whom Jonah called out to and who heard Jonah, and not some other god. Jonah says that his situation is actually being in the belly of Sheol. In yet another psalm, we read this in Psalm, 83, in psalm 86, verse 13. For your grace towards me is so great, you have rescued me from the lowest part of Sheol. Now, 
the lowest part of Sheol is in the lowest circle of the universe as the ancients envisioned it. All the dead, righteous or unrighteous, eventually wound up in Sheol. Because Sheol is said to have a belly, which is a metaphor, and it is parallel to the belly of the great fish, a reality, then we must understand that Jonah is not exaggerating. In his own mind, now catch this, in his own mind, he is dead, or as good as dead, and buried. He's entombed inside of a whale. So for Hebrew, a Hebrew, Sheol is not only the grave in the ground, it's also the portal to another world of the dead. They didn't really make such distinction between these two things. This tells us something important. Jonah sees himself as dead. I mean, how else could he have possibly understood his situation? There is no way a human being could be swallowed by a whale and be alive and breathing inside of its belly. So he didn't think he was really still alive. Rather, he thought he was experiencing the mystery of death that still allowed for conscious thought, and this is exactly as the ancients thought of existence in the netherworld. So it wasn't a leap. Now, if we can just grasp this, then the remainder of Psalm chapter of the, the Psalm of chapter two, well, now that resonates better with us. Death is his perspective. Okay? Therefore, that he realizes he is going to be delivered and revived is not that he's going to avoid death. Rather, it is that he is dead and is going to experience resurrection. Okay? So this scenario puts Jonah's experience a lot closer to that of Yeshua's, doesn't it? So for me, it was surprising to realize that this point of view about death and resurrection was not the rather predictable perspective and interpretation from a Christian but rather it is the more widespread interpretation of events by ancient Jewish scholars and rabbis. In fact, this understanding runs counter to the teaching we read in the book of Job. Job 7, 9, like a cloud dissolving and disappearing, so he who descends to Sheol will not come back up. So here in Job, the idea is once dead, always dead. The grave is a one-way street. There is no reversing the procedure and going from death back to life. One person, once a person dies, his circumstances change immediately to a permanent condition. Whereas Jonah speaks of a hope, Job at this point saw none. Back in Jonah, verse 4, Jonah says that he understands that it was God who hurled him, that is, God cast him out of the ship with violence and into the roiling sea. This wasn't an accident. It's almost as though Jonah thought it was actually God's will that he should have drowned along with the crew, but somehow he avoided it. And so now God tries to kill him again. But this time, having him literally thrown into the waters, in thrown into the waters, rather than just sinking with the rest of them. In fact, in the next few words, Jonah speaks about being engulfed by the sea waters. He invokes the words of another prophet when he says that the billows and the waves passed over him, that he, that is, he indeed felt the sensation of drowning. He assumed that was his fate. 
2 Samuel 22.5, For death's breakers were closing over me, the floods of Baal terrified me. Well, now verse 5 says that Jonah assumed he had been banished from God's sight. You're dead. It's over. The Hebrew word translated as banished in the complete Jewish Bible is garash, and it means to be expelled. It means to be forced out, driven away. That is, it's purposeful, if not violent. It's an act of forced separation. This made sense to Jonah. Because of his rash and rebellious act of trying to one a from God, rather than doing his will and going to Nineveh, Jonah felt his death was the logical, the deserved punishment. Kind of a final dismissal from the Lord's presence in proper proportion to the seriousness of his offense. Because of the beliefs in that era about death and where a dead person goes when they die, Sheol, it was assumed that certainly a dead person would never again be in the Lord's presence. Thus, when we read this verse, for an Israelite to be cast away from God, automatically included never seeing, let alone visiting the temple in Jerusalem again. And then at the end of verse 4, when uh, Jonah says, but I will again look upon your holy temple, it is with the realization that what he first thought was his eternal fate wasn't going to be so. Further, by being forever separated from God and temple also means that worshiping Him and praising Him are no longer possible. And while it may seem that his life has come to a close permanently, with those devastating consequences that accompany death, that is not what's going to happen to him. See, it's important for us to pause and think for a few minutes about the impact of what's being said here. Okay, I, I have mentioned in other Torah class lessons that there exists no statement, no example, really no mention of a concept of dying and going to heaven in the Old Testament. So in addition to putting a lie to the common Christian belief that Jews think they're trying to work their way to heaven by obeying God's rules as opposed to accepting Christ's offer of grace to get to heaven, nothing of that sort is true. Death, whether as a righteous God worshiper or not, brought with it generally similar results and none of it was very pleasant. What Jonah assumed was happening at his death is what Israelites generally thought from time immemorial, and it was still the belief right on up to Christ's day. Why? Because for the most part, everyone in the Middle East more or less, more or less thought the same thing, and they greatly feared it. This is why when Yeshua declared that there was the possibility of eternal life with God, that didn't essentially involve imprisonment underground, which also meant being apart from God, the more pleasant imprisonment in Abraham's bosom, far superior, of course, to being sent to the highly unpleasant place of torments, but still being in, but still being in captivity, his followers, man, they were ecstatic at this thought. I mean, they, they believed that this was one of the most wonderful outcomes of their Messiah's advent. Further, as you heard, even if a person was counted as righteous and placed into Abraham's bosom because death was inherently unclean in ritual status, then there is no possibility of being in holy God's presence because it would defile His perfect holiness. So Paul, what Paul teaches, absent from the body, present with the Lord, is exactly the opposite of what Hebrews had believed to be the case in his day and going back as far as Abraham, and by the way, for the most part, still to this day. You see, it's hard to overstate what a truly amazing relief and hope 
that a follower of Yeshua was told to expect after death rather than what they had been believing. Indeed, it did remove the sting from death. On the other hand, since hope was reserved strictly for those who trust in Him, then you can also imagine how much this belief caused a jealous or angry separation between believers in Yeshua and all other Jews. And this too remains to this day. Now verse 6 continues to explain the deep sea drowning experience of Jonah. He was trapped, seaweed wrapped around him, weighing him down, unable to breathe, nothing but a liquid atmosphere of seawater all around him. Terrifying. He was dying. He knew it. Now we, of course, don't know how long he was below the surface or how far down he'd sunk before that great fish arrived. The following verse says that he was sinking fast, even down to the base of the mountains. The base of the mountains was, to the ancients of his day, considered as the very bottom of the ocean. And that's what he meant by those words. Well, when the psalm continues, and Jonah speaks of the bars of the earth that are behind him forever, it is meant to contrast with the bars of Sheol. Therefore, because the Hebrew word is Eretz, the bitter translation is land or soil. Land equals life above ground, Sheol equals death below ground. We don't read in the Bible of anything about doors or bars that protect passage into or out of the realm of the land, but we do read about the gates to Sheol or the gates to death that close to imprison the departed without a means of escape back to the realm of the land and the living. See, and we have to take this much more literally than metaphorically. Because indeed, this is how the ancient people thought of it. This is how Jonah thought of it. Therefore, the next phrase has to be taken as probably Jonah's happiest realization, at least it should have been, because for him, it means nothing less than resurrection from the dead. In verse 7, Jonah comes face to face with the most outstanding of our Lord's so many wonderful attributes. His grace. Jonah realizes that his rescue, his resurrection, is going to happen. And it's going to be caused by the same God who hurled a deadly storm against him a few hours earlier. And this is a great place to highlight that grace was not a New Testament creation that began with Yeshua. Grace is and has always been an attribute of Jehovah, and it is foundational in how He's always related with mankind. But it's also important that we cease trying to characterize God, and Jesus for that matter, as having only one overriding characteristic, love. Over and over in the Bible, we see several facets of God's nature revealed to us. If we want to boil it down, to the most fundamental that it must be grace and wrath, opposites. And sometimes we might be able to say mercy and wrath because grace and mercy are so closely related. But Jonah is experiencing wrath and then grace within hours of one another. Jesus Christ in His time on earth came with a mission of grace. Just remember, when He comes next, It's going to be with a mission of wrath. So when we insist that God is love and only love, it describes a God who doesn't exist. It also says we have a God who doesn't hold us accountable for our behavior and choices with the reasoning that love and accountability cannot possibly coexist. 
Yes, of course, love is another of God's great of God's great attributes, but it doesn't negate His wrath as part of His justice. Well, Jonah says that he felt, as he felt his his life ebbing away, his mind recalled the Lord. That is, as he is in the the midst of a literal life or death struggle, when of course all of one's focus would be on self preservation. His mind turned to his God, Jehovah. You know how often we hear of people in near-death experiences speak about their lives flashing through their minds, or remembering their parents, or some such thing. While it happens in a few seconds, it feels like it's happening in slow motion. It truly is an experience that we can call remembering. And I think that's how we ought to understand what Jonah is saying here. You know, there's another psalm that has such a familiar thought that I think it might cement this perspective. In Psalm 143, it begins Adonai, hear my prayer. Listen to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me, and in your righteousness. Don't bring your servant to trial, since in your sight no one alive would be considered righteous. For an enemy is pursuing me. He has crushed my life into the ground, left me to live in darkness like those who have been long dead. My spirit faints within me. My heart is appalled within me. I remember the days of old, reflecting on all your deeds, thinking about the, the work of your hands, and I spread out my hands to you. I long for you like a thirsty land. Answer me quickly, Adonai, because my spirit is fainting. Don't hide your face from me, or I'll be like those who drop down into a pit. Jonah's is David's mind is in the midst of an imminent tragedy, maybe even death, suddenly remembering his long experience with God and God's revealed nature, and this gave them both great hope and comfort. Now, because God was pictured as living in the temple in Jerusalem, then Jonah pictures his prayer, in other words, this psalm we're reading, right, as being heard by God as he sits in that temple. The issue is not where God hears prayers. Rather, it is God is willing to hear from this rebel prophet, when because of the size of the offense, a God with attributes other than those of Jehovah might justifiably just turn a deaf ear to Jonah's plea. So verse 9 offers a contrast between Jehovah and the foolish gods that others worship. That is, these other gods of men's folly cannot offer the grace and the mercy of the God of Israel because that's just not their nature. Jonah, oddly enough, is showing a deep-seated loyalty to Jehovah by means of turning to Him at this desperate moment. He is responding to the attribute of God's grace through worship and prayer. And then continuing in verse 10, Jonah makes it clear that if he is relieved from his anxiety and danger, he can just continue on as before. If our repentance and acceptance of His grace is real, if it's real, then we will continue to return thanks to Him through a newly reformed obedience and through an ongoing attitude and acts of gratefulness. Therefore, John is saying that not only will He give thanks now, but He will continue to give God thanks by following through with His vows and by sacrificing as He should. Well, the final words of praise to God say salvation belongs to Jehovah. In Hebrew, it is the poetic form of what we translate as salvation that He speaks. He says, Yeshua which when the usual form of that is Yeshua. 
See, these two terms carry the same meaning. However, Christians have the knee-jerk reaction to this as thinking of the saving kind of salvation that Christ offers, that is, not the sense here. Rather, we would be better off to translate this as deliverance, like in being rescued. What Jonah is professing is that Yehovah is the only deliverer, the only rescuer. There is no other. There is no other God that can offer. There is no other God, other source of deliverance. We must also include in this understanding that Yehovah controls or He's in charge of deliverance. He will decide who receives deliverance and who does not. Jonah has been offered deliverance and he happily accepts it. The final verse of chapter 2 leaves this poetic psalm and returns to regular narrative prose. All the while, the three days, three nights, that Jonah had been thinking and sorting out and praying, the great fish had been, under God's direction, swimming toward shore. The idea of an animal recruited by God to serve a human in a life-giving way happens a few times in the Bible, as with Elijah in 1 Kings 17, 2 through 4. Then the word of Adonai came to him, Leave here, turn to the east, and hide in the Wadi Crete near the Jordan. You are to drink from the stream, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. In the context of the event of Jonah's adventure, we read now that the whale spewed him out, just as earlier he had swallowed him in. It is a reversal of the action. Using the word vomited out is not the best choice, because it gives us the impression of Jonah being set on the seashore in a very nasty kind of way as he might deserve. Where he was deposited exactly, we do not know. It could have been right back in the same coastal area he departed from, or he could have been deposited up the coast closer to where he would go, Nineveh. So to wrap up today's lesson, I'll say only this. Jonah deserved death. But instead, he received mercy. This is exactly the position of all humanity. God offered Jonah grace and mercy, but on God's terms, not some way that Jonah was allowed to determine. This is also the way it is for all humanity. God has provided us with one way, His way for us to avoid the eternal death that we deserve. We cannot create other options, nor wait for other possible options to suddenly appear. The Father's way of deliverance is for us to trust in His Son, Yeshua. Our only other option is to choose death. Okay, we'll begin Jonah chapter 3 the next time.